Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. We're supposed to be talking about how Biden's doing and what's happening with the GOP. But Mike, can I start with the GOP? Because this has been, no, this has been the most amazing week in terms of news. I mean, you know, you have members of the House Republican Caucus calling it the Clown Caucus. And you don't have a Speaker of the House. The House can't move anything forward except to take offices away from Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer. And now Donald Trump says that he's maybe going to go to Washington, might consider being House Speaker if they elected him. They would have to change the rules of the conference, which says that if you're indicted for anything that could result in more than two years in jail, you can't be in leadership. So you want to take a crack at this and sort of where Trump's at and where we're at with, we may not be able to govern. Let let me back up a minute. And one, it's great to be here. Good to see my friend Bob, who has enjoyed this week, I'll bet. Just to back up for a minute. Remember when Kevin had to go through all those votes to be speaker? Because he couldn't get the, the Gates crowd on. Remember all that? Well, part of the deal he made was to leave a trap door in the floor, which is a very bad deal to make because you just buy time. So anybody can call a motion to vacate. Now, the way we pick the Speaker in the House is it's not a vote of the Republicans. It's a vote of everybody. It's traditionally the first vote. The, the House assembles. we got to pick a Speaker in the party in control has some internal politics, puts somebody up, wham, party line vote, it's over. Well, Kevin's problem was he could not convince, for many reasons, 10 Democrats to go outside and smoke cigars to bring the total number of votes you need to win down. They they let them go down. And there's an argument about, well, should they have, you know, for the sake of the country? Well, it's hard to ask a party not to vote in a way that screws the other party. You know, it's like cats and dogs. And Kevin had done a lot, or former Speaker McCarthy, I guess I should call him, had done a lot to alienate the Democrats. So whatever goodwill uh, in a theoretical case might have saved him was not there. So he had almost all the repubs except eight of them who voted against him. By the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's normally the North Star of crazy, in my view, in the House, followed by both, both voted for him. But but there was a, there's kind of a gang. Some are just eccentrics who thought we have to shut down the government, and if we won't, I'll shut down you. Others were the little cult of that case. So bottom line is, the House Republican Conference has turned into Lord of the Flies, and they just ate a speaker which is yet another sign of not only is our pop culture in trouble, but the politics connected to it are, particularly, obviously, in the Republican Party. So since the House can't agree on who's speaker, they can't do anything right now, which is going to make the whole government shutdown punt tricky. Now, what's going to happen is later, I think early next week, I believe Tuesday, they're going to start having meetings among the Republican conference to all the Republicans in the House to pick somebody. And there's a campaign going on right now. And remember, these are secret ballot elections. And they're elections held among professional politicians, which means, as Bob Dole once joked, after losing 
a secret ballot election among his colleagues for Senate Finance Chairman, you know, eight to 12, Dole had eight. Funny, I went in with 20 firm commitments. So every politician is going to officially commit to five or six different people. So these things are hard to handicap. The leading early contenders, and often early contenders don't wind up final contender, are Jim Jordan, the, uh, well, you know him, he's the guy who can't afford a sport coat. Uh, and, but he's seen by a good hunk of the caucus as one conservative enough. He's a movement conservative. The New York Times would call him an ultra conservative. Um, I've been looking through 100 years of New York Times to find an American politician they ever called an ultra-liberal. Those apparently don't exist. But anyway, he's an ultra-conservative. And Steve Scalise, number two to McCarthy, kind of a bit of a rival, but, but a party guy, also strongly conservative, is kind of running. And there's a theory that Jordan might win because Kevin and his crowd are out to get even with Scalise, who was troublesome quietly, allegedly, during all this. Again, this is real Game of Thrones stuff here. And keep in mind that if it had been just a conference election, McCarthy would have won it by over 100 votes to 8. There are a lot of regulars. Now, in the old days, the regulars would pick a respected chairman, like Tom Cole, chairman of rules, a grown-up, pragmatic, cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking speaker, and get the train back on track. The problem, Who has some good relations with Democrats. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. I've, I've worked with him for 20 years. He's very impressive, and he's exactly the grown-up who ought to be speaker, which means he probably won't. One, he's too smart to want it because it's like being chief mine clearance officer, you know, in, in eastern uh, Ukraine right now. I mean, it's the worst job in politics. If you look, the minute you become Republican speaker last three times, you set a clock to the end of your political career. John Boehner, Paul Ryan, and now Kevin McCarthy. So, you know, my hint is any politicians say no, but often the dynamics are they draft somebody. So uh, I think Jordan, who was not the favorite of the regulars, but maybe more the favorite than Steve Scalise, uh, who also is suffering, you know, he's had some bumps. He was shot in that Capitol Hill softball thing, made a heroic recovery. He is well-liked by many, but blamed in some of the Game of Thrones stuff. We'll see. Jordan's got his own problems. He's got a lot of problems. He was around that scandal in the Ohio State wrestling team. Might have, you know, the allegations have been made. And he's the early leader in kind of a, a plurality. But there could be a compromise candidate come later. There be, and there's another couple who may run. So it's going to be messy. There will be a speaker in the end. But it could be a real wackadoodle speaker. And the civil war inside the conference over all this it is not going to end immediately. And, of course, what's coming down the road in 42 days or whatever the count is, is another government shutdown vote. McCarthy kind of jumped on the railroad tracks to do the right thing there. The lesson to the next one is stay out of the right thing business. Uh, so it's really bumpy, really bad, terrible for the Republican brand. And finally, I should say, among kind of what I like to call the direct mail fundraising caucus of the, of the House, there are some who love this Trump idea. I don't think Trump could win a conference election, by the way, but it would be close. I doubt he'll do it. As you say, they got to change the law. The real mission for the next, if, if I were one of the regulars, like a Cole or Tom Emmer, uh, there are a couple, and they came to me and the votes were there, I wouldn't do it unless the motion to vacate rule got changed. Because you don't want to get in a tough job where everybody in Congress has an ejector button. 
and you just offend six of them to see what happens. So it's a disaster, pure and simple. I think they have to call the Vatican, and they have to borrow the chimney because they're going to be in there for days, I, I predict. And they could send up black smoke every four hours, and then finally they could send up white smoke. We, we use orange smoke now, but go ahead. <laughs> well, orange smoke might signal that you're wrong about Donald Trump uh, being elected speaker. There's a lot of play acting going on here, and I think genuine anger. You have uh, a congressman named Lawler from New York who says, I want to throw these eight people out of the caucus. I want to take away their committee chair uh, seats. You know, I want to totally isolate them. Well, then you're never going to get enough votes to elect a speaker. Right. I mean, one of the odd things here is they need Matt Gates. It's as if George Washington had suddenly needed Benedict Arnold after he tried to betray the country at West Point. They, they have to hold on to every single one of those votes, including the people who went after Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, until, again, the, the good politician move, and I want a, a tough operator, is promising the world, win the speaker vote, change the motion to vacate, and then murder them all. Uh, we used to have a thing called the fifth floor cannon punishment. One of the great things about being speaker is you pick the office space. If you're in the minority party, you don't get a lot of great office spaces. Nancy figured out. But you, you, there are some, and it's all seniority and which faction. On the fifth, the cannon office building is known as the freshman dorm, smallest offices. So if you have no seniority, welcome to Congress, you're going to cannon. And there's a fifth floor there with the worst office space in the world and a few unlucky low seniority members work there. Often it has tricky air conditioning. So I'd shut off the air conditioning and move gates up there the minute after I'm a speaker. <laughs> but you got to get rid of motion to vacate because that is you give every, it's like being a kindergarten teacher and on day one you hand every kid a loaded pistol. Well, you just can't have it. Yeah, I thought we had to start with that. But let's move on. To the, and I think it's going to have implications for the House races next year where some of the reapportionment that's going on in New York the Alabama decision that came down today where they created a second uh, majority minority district in Alabama will probably elect a Democrat. I think you'll see New York reapportion, and that's not necessarily going to be good for the Republicans. But you put all that together, it creates trouble in the House elections. But the other real question that I think is on the minds of a lot of what Mike calls regular Republicans is are they going to have to run with Trump? And today there's a, a poll out in New Hampshire showing Nikki Haley now has passed Ron DeSantis. DeSantis is down to what, Mike, $6 million? In his federal account, yeah. And, and, and Which is really extraordinary. I mean, he'll be lucky to get through Iowa unless something changes. Uh, Mike has held all along against almost everybody else that there is a chance that Trump will not be the Republican nominee. So I think you should make that case. Well, I've often said that if President Xi ever called me up and say, hey, I don't normally go with Irish Americans, but you want to run the Chinese National Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, and I took the job, the first thing I'd do is be to appropriate $20 bucks to quietly bribe media pollsters. Because the early polls set the entire psychology and assumptions of the race. And what polls are good at doing is telling you what people thought a week ago about who they might vote for at the election were the next day. 
And there's value in that. You also learn a lot about the electorate and everything. But it, predictions are not particularly great, at least not far in the future elections. And they're really bad at national primaries. Because when you take a poll of Republicans, who do you want to vote for president? You're trying to forecast a national election a week later. Well, when there is no national election, presidents are nominated by delegates. Delegates are chosen in state contests that are like a row of dominoes on the calendar where the early ones have an effect on the later ones. So, you know, you're measuring something that doesn't exist. Now, you do find out who the most popular is, if there was a national election, who they vote for, yada, yada, yada. But what really counts is the early states that don't have many delegates, but you get such media attention. If you win there, you change the dynamic of the later states. And this happened many, many times. At this time, in the last really uh, open Republican primary in 2007, Governor Scott Walker of, uh, was cruising to you know early success. So we need to actually have a vote. If you look at the Iowa New Hampshire electorates, they're different consumers. They live in a world with a lot of grocery stores. So they get to shop. A Republican voter in Wyoming, yeah, you can watch Fox News, and there's that Rick DeSantis guy and that that Nikki Scott. You know, it, yeah, they know, but they don't really know. You go, and I've spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. I'm going to leave for there next week. You can't, you know, sneeze and not hit a candidate right now. So those voters have a lot more choices. So you, as Bob says, you want to watch the polling there where there's competition. And there's a CBS poll out a week ago that doesn't try to predict the future, but asks a more important question. All right, Republicans in New Hampshire, how many of you are going to vote for Trump, hell or high water? 22%. How many of you know of Don Trump and have an opinion of him? 100%. So he's doing one out of five of people who know him are locked in. How many of you are looking for somebody other than Trump? 33%. So they're not going there. How many of you might vote for Trump? You know him. Just did some good things. I'm a Republican but are maybe stopping by a few of the other rallies to pick up the free beer koozie and hear the candidate. It's like 54%. So the market's open. And in primaries, polling moves late. In a general election in a competitive state, you know that 45% of the people are going to vote Democrat. They always do. 43% vote Republican. They always do. And then you have, in that math, 12% who may go either way. Well, if 30% of the 12% move, right, you're looking at three or four points. In a primary, it's a herd of one animal, be it donkey or elephant. When they move, they all move. So if 30% of a primary moves, that's 30% swing. So in the end, there can be big swings. And Bob and I have both been involved in Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primaries, where you've seen exactly that. So do I think it's a certainty that Trump won't be the nominee? No, I think he's the front runner. Do I think we're in for a very interesting November, December, and early January there? I sure do. And Nikki Haley, who historically, because I know her, I've not been a huge fan of, I think she's very cynical, but if she can beat Trump, I'm all for her, and she's moving up. Last thing I'll say is, those of us who do this for a living on election day, when we wake up, hey, have you checked the polls? We're not checking the poll. We're checking the FEC report. Because every quarter, if you're a candidate, you fill out a big report that tells where you spent your money, where, how much money came in that quarter, and how much cash you have in the bank. And consultants love to look at that because that's an x-ray. One of, can you believe he's paying his campaign manager that much? That idiot couldn't park a car when he worked for me on Henderson 98. But when you get over the personal bitterness stuff, the cash on hand tells you how many bullets they've got in the tank. 
And that's really important because it starts getting really expensive at this fourth quarter because you're buying a lot of TV in Iowa and New Hampshire. New Hampshire means Boston, a very expensive market. Ron DeSantis just so forget about Super PAC for a minute. His almighty, can raise a lot of money, started with a lot of cash. Federal campaign has $6 million cash on hand. In presidential politics, that's $1.25. So the DeSantis tank is running thin on gas which you could have predicted because the donors turn on you quick when every day they see you running a terrible campaign. So that is very good news for Nikki Haley, who was running out of gas three months ago, heading for Nowhereville, had a great debate. The non-Trump major donors, a lot of them, went scuttling originally from DeSantis. Then they went to Tim Scott. Tim Scott didn't show up at the debate. Then they went to Haley. So she's got money coming in at just the right time. First in defense of the scenario Mike lays out, this is exactly what happened in the Democratic Party in 2004. Howard Dean had this huge, seemingly insurmountable lead in Iowa. It was at 40-some percent in November. Finished third in the caucus. People at the end said, well, we need to get serious and we need to think about who might push. So in 2004, people said, who might plausibly beat Bush. And they looked at Howard Dean and they took a second look and a third look and they said, not him. And he finished third in in Iowa. He was second in New Hampshire, but Kerry basically ran the table. I mean, literally the front runner fell apart. It could happen here. Most political observers think it won't. And if it does happen here, then Mike deserves a medal. Maybe maybe you get a big red Soviet star or something. Uh, The second thing I would comment on, and then we should turn to the Democrats, Trump seems to hold his place in the national polls, at least, despite indictment after indictment after indictment, despite saying General Milley is treasonous and deserves the death penalty, all of that. But the impact of that on general election voters I think is quite different than the impact of it on base voters. So the suburban women, the independents, the young people who made the difference and elected Biden in 2020, I think are repelled by that kind of stuff. And he will, in my view, pay a price in the general election for having gone through all this. People say, well, the indictments don't matter. Well, they don't matter a lot, apparently, to most primary voters, although very interested that 33% of those people in New Hampshire don't want him, which means some of them are not going to vote for him in a general election. But with voters in general, I think he's very, very hurt by A, what's happened to him, and B, what he does to himself, coming out on the courthouse steps, making these statements about the judge ought to be disbarred, I mean, all this stuff. I, I, I just think it's bad for him. Uh, I'm not sure the country really wants to go back to what looks like it could be not just a chaos caucus in the House, but a chaos White House. So that would be my second thing. But we should turn to the Democrats. First of all, all this talk about Biden not running is ridiculous. Uh, Whether or not you think he should run, he is running. He will not get a serious challenge in the Democratic primary. Robert Kennedy Jr. looks like He's going to flee the Democratic Party and try to run as an independent. He may be endorsed by Elon Musk, who wants to set up a secret, uh, a super PAC to help him. And Biden's going to be the nominee. 
then voters are going to have potentially a choice they don't want. They're going to have a choice between Joe Biden, who they worry is too old, and Donald Trump, who they worry is too unstable, too, maybe too, how how do I put this in a neutral way, too inclined to kick over the norms and to to create a situation where America isn't quite what it has been for over 200 years. And in that choice, I think, for the reasons I said a few minutes ago, people will be pushed toward Biden, maybe somewhat reluctantly. Now, he may have to pull off a Harry Truman. I mean, Harry Truman in 1948 was running against the Thomas E. Dewey, the, the Republican nominee, but he was also running against two splinter parties from the Democratic Party. He was running against Strom Thurmond, the Dixiecrats, and he was running against Henry Wallace and the so-called Progressive Party, which primarily actually was was either fellow traveling or communist in character. And people said, there's no way he can win. There's absolutely no way. Until the night when he was able to hold up the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Dewey wins, which was wrong, uh, and became one of the most famous newspaper photographs of all time. So... A, Biden's running. B, by the way, he's not going to replace Kamala Harris on the ticket. That would be, he would pay a huge political price for doing that and and won't do it. Uh, and C, the bet is from the Biden folks that in the choice between Trump and Biden, they're going to pick Biden. And he is also going to continue to talk about the threats to democracy. He was mocked for doing it in the run-up to 2022. And then in the exit polls, people gave it as the second or third biggest reason why they voted and why there wasn't a red tsunami. Now, I know Mike disagrees with a lot of this, so I'm going to... No, I think I'll keep the mic. (laughs) Actually, Bob is right. Biden is going to run. I just think he shouldn't. And he's not going to replace Kamala Harris. I think he should. But, and I'll explain why, it's pretty simple. Trump has, you know, again, a majority chance. I went out, went for this scenario, I think, is more likely than conventional wisdom thinks, but it's still a minority view. If he's nominee, Trump is an existential risk, okay? It's not just losing to Paul Ryan or somebody. You know, you're losing to somebody who hates democracy and the rule of law and is stone cold crazy. We haven't had a president before where the retiring chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has to remind anybody that the military is not this is true. They don't take an oath to the president or the Fuhrer. They take an oath to the Constitution. That is a big deal. And he actually had to remind us of that because he's, he is trying, he's a patriot, to condition every second lieutenant on up in the U.S. military. Remember the oath you took to the Constitution. You don't have to follow unlawful orders. So the military is getting ready for God knows what. And when the stakes are that high, if you're Joe Biden, who I voted for, and you'll vote for him again. Yeah, against Trump in a New York minute, I will. He should step back and say, you know, we're playing with the whole franchise here. Biden, and you can argue if it's his fault or not, I actually think, I like to tweak my podcast partner, David Axrod, once in a while. You know, he kind of got more done than Obama, don't you think? You know, because the truth is, in domestic policy, he got a ton done. A little help from some repubs in the Senate, but yeah, Biden has done a lot. The problem is we're in a perception is reality business. And inflation is a president killer politically, and we had a bad bout of it. And the economists were but it's getting better now. Yeah, the guy buying a new truck right now, wondering why the payment's not the same as the zero interest thing last time, doesn't really want to get out the supply and demand curves, wants to punish somebody. And in politics, you punish the president. The book does stop there. So Biden's numbers are terrible. 
Trump's numbers are terrible. Interesting, though, when you ask people who's better on the economy, Trump who you hate or Biden who you hate, they do Trump by 18 points. That's a problem for Biden. If they fix that, they win. Now, I think the odds are higher. Biden wins, excuse me, yes, Biden wins than Trump. But I would be for de-risking this. And so I think you should step aside. There's still a, a shrinking window for a competitive primary. There's some young superstar governors in that party. And I think they'd all be a hell of a lot better in a general election. But Bob's right. It's not going to happen. Biden's going to go and he's going to run. Jurassic judgment. You know, he's got a few slogans working out. And I do think he has the edge on Trump. Now, all my Democratic friends are panicking on the national polls. So let me do a little callback to that problem. We, the Electoral College... That's how we elect the president, not the popular vote. Now, normally, they align. You win the popular vote, you get more votes, it works out, you win the Electoral College. In history, there were three times in the 18th century that it didn't work out that way. It, in the 19th century, it was already, aligned, already the same thing. You win the popular vote, you win the Electoral College. And then we had two more in the, in the 20th century where it went sideways again. So it's back. And so when you take a national poll, the popular vote, you get a good prediction late of the popular vote. But you don't project right in the Electoral College. Now, where'd the Electoral College come from? Well, when they set up the country, they thought, you know, all the money and powers in Boston and New York. And we're going to have a civil war because the southern states, the agricultural states, the Great Plains are all not going to want to be bossed around by a bunch of rich guys in the port of New York. So we're going to do this thing where... You can get drunk and vote for a congressman, the popular rabble, they would say. And every two years we change them because God knows who's going to get elected. But we have the state legislatures appoint the thoughtful senators every six years. So we have a, a little slowdown on this whole thing. And we give every state two senators. So big New York can't boss around Nebraska. That, that was the theory. And the Electoral College works the same way, kind of. So you know who invented it, by the way? Alexander Hamilton. That is the one song that was not in the musical. You know, I invented Trump. Uh, So there's moves to reform it. It's very hard to do. So we may have that again. Because as the countries become more polarized, the votes become more concentrated. And the Electoral College rewards geographical dispersion. Interestingly, there are about 3,200 counties in America. Biden got 80% of his vote from about 460 of them. Trump got his vote from the other 2,500. So he's more dispersed into less populous area. L.A. County here, we, we have almost 11 million voters. You know, we're Indiana. So, or bigger, actually. So that thing has made the national polling of the popular vote a little less predictive. Now, one good news I tell the Biden people to wrap this up is when you see Biden 45, Trump 45, Trump's ceiling is definitely there. Biden is what people say is, my God, he's so low. Yes, Biden is only winning California by eight points instead of the 15 he should win it by. But in the Electoral College, he's going to get all the electoral votes. It's done. Trump may win Alabama by 65% instead of just 60. Doesn't matter. Same Electoral College. So these polls are a little misleading about that, and Biden has hidden strength in them. That said, when my Democrats' friends, should we panic? I say, yes. Panic. Get up early. Work harder. Send him money. Do everything you can. Because Biden, by traditional standards, is going into his reelect in a very weak, normally loses the election situation.
What he's got going is he can say, and this is their whole plan, you think I'm bad, take a look at throat cancer over there and Trump. And Trump is a flypaper for negatives. But that's the easy part of the Biden meeting every day. How do we screw Trump? The hard part is how do we fix Biden on the economy? Because if a week before the election, 15% of the country thinks Trump's better on the economy than Biden, he's going to lose. So they've got a very clear campaign. If I were them, they get the people hate Trump thing for free. The harder thing is convince Biden, and Biden, again, suffers from economic perception, and he's old. You walking out of this thing, you go poke a normal person who's not junkies like we are. What do you think about Biden? Yeah, he's pretty old. It's like having antlers. Biden could give a press conference tomorrow, and I've solved cancer, and everybody would say, yeah, but you got antlers in your head. So they, they, they need a really good campaign to move those numbers. They're trying, but their approach has been, in my view, too much of, aren't the statistics great? No, no, no. I hear you. I get it. We've done the hard work. It's starting to turn, and I have a plan for the future. Not, you owe me your vote because inflation's down. I agree completely with Mike on how they ought to position themselves. It ought to be, we've made a great start. We've done some important things. But we have a lot more to do to get this country to where we want it to be. Uh, the one other consolation for Democrats is, if you looked at, say, a Reagan-Mondale poll, in the summer of 83, Mondale was winning. Uh, this was, you know, 14 months before he lost 49 states. Uh, it depends on when the perception, it depends on two things, A, no recession, and B, when does the perception kick in in people's daily lives that the economy is good? Actually, Reagan got reelected. It was morning in America, and unemployment was 7.4%. But it had been so much higher and people were feeling it coming down, that, uh, that, that he could win that victory. Uh, I've known Biden for 50 years. Uh, he wanted to be president from the day he came to the Senate. Uh, in fact, he once autographed a picture for me that, that I still have that says, if I could speak like you could write, who knows what I could be. Uh, and he knew what he wanted to be. He's got two problems in terms of age. By the way, he's only three years older than Trump. But he's got two problems in terms of age. One, he's got spinal arthritis. So when you see him walk out to give a speech, he looks stiff and old. Now, it has nothing to do with his head. Uh, secondly, his childhood stutter has reasserted itself. So when he's reading a speech, giving a speech, he knows that he's about to stutter or that he's about to miss a word. So he'll say, folks, I really mean this, or ladies and gentlemen, or... As my or his, his go-to, as my father always said, and there'll be some aphorism from his father. Uh, one of the interesting things about Kevin McCarthy is uh, he told his caucus, "Look, he may look old, but I've been negotiating with him, and he's in command. He knows what he's doing." The problem with that is, in the television age, you you see, you don't just hear. I, I had the thought the other day, by the way, if there was no TV, ha-ha, uh, and, you know, none of this stuff and pictures, if you just listen to, like, his interview with John Harwood from the other day, he sounds pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. But if you look at him, there are moments when he's searching for a word. So I think this issue is going to be with us all the way through the election. And the, where it's going to be determined is in the debates, assuming there are debates. In 1960, JFK went into that first debate. 
was supposed to be on domestic policy. He basically turned it into a debate on foreign policy, national security, and where the Soviet Union was vis-a-vis the United States. And Nixon made the mistake of winning the coin flip and then saying Kennedy can go first. And then like a high school debater, I'll refute whatever he says. So Kennedy set the whole terms of that debate. I think, and, and came out of it with people saying, yeah, he's passed the threshold. He could be president, uh, which was a critical thing for Nixon, who had been running on the slogan, Experience Counts. So when we get to the debates, people are going to watch Biden like a hawk to see how good he is, not just at making an argument, but at making that argument sound coherent and smooth, how comfortable he is. Now, it could all get blown up because Trump could could do what he did in 2020 and just turn the debate into a, I'm not going to say it, into, into a, a clown car, a mess, a screaming mess, in which case Biden, in my view, would have missed an opportunity to get up there and demonstrate what he could do. It'll be interesting to see a guy, I think Trump may refuse to debate, not only in the primaries, but in the general election. Because, by the way, he's not Mr. Swifty. I mean, he said two weeks ago that Biden was going to take us into World War II uh, uh, in a stump speech. Uh, And he gave this strange thing yesterday about if he was drowning and there was a shark there, would he want to be eaten by the shark or would he want to drown? Nobody knew what he was talking about. Uh, But the press has a kind of different metric for him than for Biden, number one, and number two, you know, Politics is kind of a reality show now, and uh, he had a lot of years of practice doing exactly that. Now, I think we should open this up for questions, but I do want to give Mike, if he wants to. So, No, no, I agree. The debates will be key if there are debates. For a long time, we think there won't be debates, but then when it's time, one of them will be losing, and whoever's losing will, will want to debate. And then we'll be able to. So I think there will be debates. The only thing I'll just say on the Biden age to wrap up and get to questions I keep screaming this on Hacks on Tap and other places, and word kind of get back. The Biden people hate that idea. Well, make them look old. My thing is when they put him out in front of a blue curtain, he looks old, okay? So he has a gifted cabinet. So do action team, you know, and I would surround him. Pete Buttigieg, he can add up phone numbers in his head. Gina Raimondo, when the computer didn't work in Rhode Island, she built a new one herself. You know, he's got this bunch of young geniuses around. Surround him. Mitch Landrew, he's poured more concrete than anybody in American history to fix your highways. He's a, and, you know, there's an action team there, and Biden is the wise old owl in charge because you're not going to get the old out. And that way it's not all about he's so old it's going to wind up being Kamala Harris, who is not a gifted general election politician. Surround him with the young genius team. He's the chairman. They're all deferential. And send the subtext message of, we can handle this, by the way, just like the Reagan guys did the last two years. You know, it's when they negotiated the Soviets near the end, Jim Baker would come in and made sure the Soviets knew that right under Reagan were a bunch of stone-cold killers. And don't try anything, boys. So they need that. They think it makes them look older. I'm like, the battle of old is left. Counterattack with the battle of super-competent team versus Keystone cop Republicans who think the metric system's a communist plot. And to Bob's last point, Donald Trump, who's gotten worse. Trump, you hear the Bund rally the other day? I don't, I don't throw the World War II analogies around, but Trump is out there saying, and the next time they loot a store, we shoot them. Shoot them right there, dead. Really? No trial, no arrest. We're just going to open fire. 
And the Trump started, the crowd started chanting Trump, Trump, Trump. And he was, I mean, it was Third Reich stuff. So he's lost his mind. And that could help Biden in the clutch and this high wire. I'm going to rerun old videos of Carl Walenda getting across the wire in the, in, in the wind just to relax. But the Biden guys need to change it up. And I would use that cabinet every day, just surround him. No more solo act. We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we'll take questions. Just come to the mics here. The one mic up here, just line up, and we'll take one question after another. Can you explain the rule, how Trump, you keep speaking before, Corbish, did talk about Glenn uh, First of all, you don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker of the House. It's a post created in the Constitution. Uh, it, could be, it could be any of you, if you can get the 218 votes. It's probably 217 this time because of some vacancies. Uh, I'll let you do the other. The second half of the question was Glenn Youngkin. One-term governor of Virginia, private equity guy, knows his way around a down vest. The first lady of the Commonwealth of Virginia is an especially cool and neat person because she used to work for me uh, as an intern a million years ago, which reminds me how old I am now. There's a lot of donor chatter. Donors are always looking for the miracle savior when they get nervous. And the Republican donors who the bulk of them who know Trump's, Trump is crazy uh, and a disaster are like, we got to get somebody quick. DeSantis didn't work out. Tim Scott showed up to the debate and didn't do anything. Maybe Nikki, but ah! So they're running around. And the, what's changed, I think Bob would agree, now the big donors all hire press secretaries. You know, the man who invented the plastic coat hanger. Now a political genius who's going to get behind, and all they need to do is call a New York Times reporter once, and then they do a process story. Donors looking for Yunkin to enter. Candidates are like serial killers. It's hard to stop them from running, stop them from killing. So the idea that he's got to be coaxed in, no, he'd be running already. So I admire him. He's good. It's too late. Thank you uh, both. It's been quite entertaining listening to you. Um, I wanted to bring another voice into the room. I'm a Republican from Massachusetts. Um, I was the state chair when my friend Nick was running for our Republican nomination. We met before in uh, various places. Um, and um, thinking as a Republican, like you talked about regular Republicans, and you know, uh, you might think of more like that, but increasingly um, I'm drawn to Trump because I don't like the way that democracy is being destroyed by the Attorney General, by all the suits against him. I don't think that helps the Democrats, um, but I'm curious on your view, which is if somebody else did get the nomination, Absolutely. I think even DeSantis would be. I, I respectfully disagree with one of your premises. Joe Biden has gone out of the way to not interfere with the DOJ to the point where liberal Democrats have criticized Merrick Garland for not being tougher, not doing more, 
not starting the investigation sooner. And they've given total independence to the guy who's investigating Hunter Biden. Well, he may or may not be responsible, but it is the banana republic. Well, I, 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 well, let me say then in response to you, this could become a banana republic if you get your way. Yes, sir. Maybe a little off, off topic, but I'm just wondering if either of you guys have opinions of ways to improve the system that function within the, the current democratic framework. Look, if you could reform the Electoral College, I think that would be a good idea. I just don't think it can be done. You I think the, the pact of, you know, the... Well, the Electoral College pact, that has a lot of dangers, by the way. Yeah. First of all, it might be legally challenged. Secondly, what if a state doesn't keep its word? Because there's nothing that can force it. The Electoral College pact says, we'll give our electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote. And they've got states worth, what, 170, 180 electoral votes signed up to that. No, the way to reform the Electoral College, it has to be done through a constitutional amendment. And I, I just don't see how that's going to happen. Although, by the way, those people in Wyoming that Mike was talking about, if we didn't have the Electoral College, the candidates would have to go campaign there because every vote would count. Now they campaign in about 17 and really seven states. And that's where everything is. The second thing is, I kind of like ranked choice voting if people can get used to it. I think that would make a, a, a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the two things that would help, one is redistricting reform. Right now, we only got about 40 members of Congress in competitive districts. The rest might as well be in the Soviet parliament. They're never going anywhere, which means depending on the district, they're picked by the teachers union on the left or by, kind of depends on the region of the country, but conservative organizations on the right. And most voters, it doesn't matter who, it's a magic trick. Pick any card you want, you're going to get what's pre-selected. So Iowa does it best. They basically, you know, get a couple of actuaries and a computer, no politics, and then they get a lot more competitive elections. I'm a conservative market guy. I want the voter market to get as big as possible. When you narrow it, you're putting a fix in. It's like monopoly stuff. I love ranked choice voting because that incentivates candidates not only to get who they need to win the primary, but to be a lot of people's second choices. Uh, It's a more market-based way. I also like top two primaries. Let everybody run the top two regardless of party. Finish. That frees them of the shackles of being caught in a prison of narrow orthodoxy. When I was working for Schwarzenegger, we'd settle the budget every year with the Big Five meeting. We'd bring in the head of the Assembly, Democrat, head of the State Senate, Democrat, Republican minority leader in each body, two board Republicans of very little power, sometimes in the Senate, and Schwarzenegger and some of the technical people, and we try to land the budget. And the Speaker of the House here, and remember, we're as big as France. We're a real economy. We're big lot of money at stake, would leave the room every seven minutes to call the head of the teachers and the SCIU to see if he could have lunch or not, or what, what tie to wear, or can they vote? And Schwarzenegger was like, throw him out, bring them in. And if you're a Democrat, let's say you're a pro-business moderate Democrat, and you're running a primary here for assembly, which is bigger than a congressional district, you get a little visit. Here's how it's going to be. Primary low number of voters, though it's better now because we have the top two, uh, here are the eight things you're going to be for, or we're going to wipe you out tomorrow. And you're working for them, and you're dead. So we got to widen it so the, the narrow special interests have less power. I want to say one other thing, and it's not a systemic change. We have to restore respect for our institutions. We have to believe that when somebody wants to impeach George W. Bush, that the basis isn't there to do it. And you shouldn't try and move ahead and do it. 
we have to believe, we have to stop talking about defunding the FBI or going back to the spoils system so that everybody in the federal government would work for the president. We've got to restore respect for our institutions. The only one that survived so far, uh, I mean, the churches are way down, politics is way down, government is really way down, is the military. But that's probably taking a hit right now, too, because of the controversy that's been generated by General Milley and because of what Tommy Tuberville uh, has done to military promotions. So I didn't mean to filibuster, but it, it really goes back to the question the gentleman from Massachusetts asked. We got to stop being suspicious on either side of our institutions because we won't survive as a democracy unless we somehow or other believe in them. Well, what you just said goes to my question. When I came to the United States, uh, Ronald Reagan was president. And I fell in love with this country because of how civil politics was then. And for the first time in my life, I felt free to speak whatever I wanted. And I knew I was not going to be judged or rejected for that. I had the feeling, you correct me if I'm wrong, that this country has changed, that politics is not civil anymore, it's a sport or a hunting sport. And now I am afraid sometimes to say things because I don't know who I'm going to offend. I didn't have that feeling when I came here. What do you think, what country my children are going to have 20 years from now? Mike, you want to? No, I, I, I'm with you. You know, this, uh, this is going to get me probably walked off campus, so this could be my swan song. Because... Uh, <laughs> We are in a world where there is a toxic wokeism. It's kind of like McCarthyism. You get shouted down as evil pretty easily. Now, on one hand, you don't want evil speech, but you do want speech. And part of what Bob said, we're in a culture now in politics everywhere else where everybody's a warrior, so it's all, I'm right, you're evil. And if you're evil, I can do anything to you. Lock you up, arrest you, lock her up. Yeah, and so it is, it's toxic. And once in a while, I've been to situations where, you know, oh, it's a trigger for me to talk about Ronald Reagan or something. Well, you know, grow up a little, okay? You know, you got a brain, use it. Arguments are good. I I had the benefit of the second, I didn't go to USC. Uh, I had to settle for the Foreign Service School at Georgetown. It was still run by the Jesuits then. And they'd say, what's something you really disagree with, uh, X? Stand up in front of the class and make a compelling argument for it. The value of a fair argument with, to Bob's point, agreed upon facts. That's the thing now, and it's the first step of the slide into tyranny. We're adjusting facts. You know, we don't argue from a common set of facts. That's very dangerous. So I think, I think everything's a little precious now in some ways. And because there's a certain legitimate moral force behind some of it, there's, a, there's now an appetite to make it kind of a reverse McCarthy totalitarianism of here are your approved opinions. And that is terrible. We ought to have a civic society where you can disagree, disagree, but speak up and say. And you, you don't get immediately canceled. You know? And by the way, when you say something stupid, maybe if you had a virtuous life, you get a pass and you learn the lesson rather than be sent to Siberia instantly. So, yeah, but I'm a grumpy old white guy, and I'm, I'm told every day my era is over. So I should shut up. But, you know, I do feel it's a bit out of control. But we do have to, I think, along with this, examine 
very carefully and try to figure out what we can do about the forces that have allowed the emergence of the kind of thing we saw in Charlottesville where people were chanting, the Jews will not replace us. I mean, we lost 365,000 people defeating the Nazis in World War II. Uh, And that would have been an unthinkable thing for people to parade and say and be told there are good people on both sides uh, 20 years ago. So it's, it's a question of restoring faith in institutions and a respect for civility. Go ahead. Well, thanks um, for being here as well. So I am a uh, gardener. I'm not an economist, but I, I agree with uh, Carville, who said uh, it's the economy, stupid. Maybe back to Reagan. Trickle-down economics seems like a repeating theme. And to me, it doesn't seem to make sense that it would work, because if you give companies more money, they just want to make more profits. So why would they, why would you, can't blame them for not wanting to share, maybe. Biodynamics seems to make more friend, more sense to me. You feed the roots, um, build up from there. So I'm just wondering why the Republicans keep getting so far ahead in their, you know, if you poll, who, who do you trust on the economy? It's, uh, I just say perception is reality. And people are still living with the after effects of the inflation, what happened. Uh, you know, that Inflation may have stopped going up mostly, but the loaf of bread still costs like 12% more than it did two years ago. And, you know, you go to a restaurant, prices are significantly up in part because in a tight labor market, it's hard to get help. Once Mike wants to defend trickle-down economics. Well, that, that's a brand. Uh, it's not an ideology. It's a good Democratic bumper sticker, just like calling the Democrats socialists all the time. Uh, I think... Most free market people, many of us in the Republican Party, though I'm hanging on by a thread uh, because I'm not a populist, I'm a conservative. Growth is good. Corporate profits are not a bad thing. People think they all go to a room somewhere. No, they go to shareholders, pension plans. They pay for new equipment to modernize plants. I, I like free enterprise. I like profits. I like growth. I like the society, the economic engine, which is worth sure better. Free enterprise works so much better at taking p- people out of poverty than anything else. The policy debate is, okay, all this wealth is being created. How much should the government redistribute based on need? What should the tax rate be? What should that money be spent on? A lot of us, I like building highways and ports and stuff because that's capital spending and it'll help create more wealth for more people. Another argument, Bob, is, you know, take the money and give it to people, subsidize behavior. Well, you want to fight poverty, but how much? You know, should in hindsight, because nobody knew. And by the way, in the Trump era, the Republicans were terrible spenders. So there's no purity on this. Every incumbent politician wants to say, I'm going to spend money to give it to you or build something. France builds cheaper highways than we do. There is a multi-billion dollar fraud scandal here in California about the public assistance agencies that were funded to the moon and massive fraud. So a lot of us on my side don't trust the government to spend that money even if the cause is bulletproof. And that is a great political debate to have about policy on agreed facts. Here's X amount of money. What do we do with it? And have some trust in some institutions and then have the fight. Yeah, the only thing I'd say in, in agreement with you is getting rid of the child tax credit was insane. We lifted so many millions of kids out of poverty, and now they're headed right back down into it. So Mike and I, we love each other. We disagree. Go ahead. Yeah, I was struck by something that Mike said about wanting to de-risk this. Because, you know, if Biden is a known, 
And if he decides not to run, then we go into an unknown. And it's possible that it, maybe Kamala Harris could get it or a Pete Buttigieg or a Bernie or an Elizabeth Warren. I mean, we just don't know who would get it, right? So just from his perspective, wouldn't it be wiser to not take the risk of bowing out? I think that's a great question. And there is a built-in incumbent advantage in presidential elections. So I, I myself not only believe that Biden uh, will run, I think he should run. But I agree with Mike that he needs to tweak that message so it leans forward. Al Gore had a line once, elections are not an, a reward for past performance. So we'll see. That is a terrific question. And you're right. Every unknown has risks. My view is there is one catastrophic risk, which would be the re-election of Trump. So I want to hedge to get rid of that which means I want another Republican to win, even one I don't like. And I want a stronger candidate than Joe Biden to run in the general because I think Trump could beat Biden. Don't, I don't think he will, but I think it's close enough to scare the hell out of me and all our allies. And, you know, and I, we didn't mention the House defunding of Ukraine. That's the best day Vladimir Putin has had since the election of Donald Trump. It is a catastrophic geopolitical defeat because what's really going, the people who count in Ukraine beyond the Ukrainians and their cause even if you don't believe in that and you can name the flaws of the Ukrainian government, are the Chinese who are watching this. And that's the big game. And so, anyway, and it's an indictment of the Republicans that we can't get our act together to do something that's so much in our interest, at least in the House we can't. So I want to de-risk the catastrophic outcome of Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And in my view, everything is organized backwards from that. I worked in the Republican Party for nearly 40 years. Uh, believed in it and was part of the cause. And it's hard for me to say, I hope a Democrat wins. But, you know, uh, that's where we are. Trump's, Trump cannot be president. So I want to thank all of you. We've gone a little bit over time, so we're going to stop. I hope you have a great rest of Trojan Family Weekend. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.